Now, who, who came ready to talk physics this morning? Physics. Well, we're gonna. Newton's second law of motion. Newton's third law of motion. Anybody familiar with these? Newton's third law you're probably familiar with. It says for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Okay, 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 okay. So what that's saying is if I hit this, force is exerted, and there's an equal and opposite reaction that's responding to my action. Okay? A rocket gives thrust. That's the action. The reaction is that it goes up to the same corresponding level as the thrust that's sending it up. Okay? Now, the third law is a little bit more hard to understand. And I, I'm not in no way, shape, or form a physics major, professor, teacher, understander-er. Okay? But it has something to do with the mass of the object that is being either that is either acting upon something or that is being acted upon. Right. The table won't move when I punch it because of the mass that it has. It will return my so let me just let me give you an example. Anybody ever play any baseball? I didn't play much. I played one year of organized baseball. I was awful. I mean awful. Some things I was all right in. Baseball, no. I knew very early on baseball was not my calling. I was in right field where they always put the worst player because they didn't hit many balls in right field. And if they did hit it your way, it's to the fence. Just forget about it, okay? So I'm standing out there most of the game like this and standing like this in the batter's box. Okay, so they let me try pitching once. I was too. I was about this big, guys. I mean, I was twelve, but I was about this big. I failed to see the humor in that. Okay. Anyway, I could barely get the ball to the catcher. Literally. Now, what if I would have been pitching, and I was probably about ten at the time, to be truthful. Eight. Nine or ten. What if I'd have been pitching to a major league baseball player? And I go up there and I give it everything I got and it hits the radar gun at about 22 miles an hour. And that major league baseball player gets a hold of it. Probably not going to see that ball again, right? But... In this law of motion, it has something to do with the amount of force on the ball that's headed toward the batter and the amount of force that the batter is exerting as he swings. Now, Major League Baseball players, they say, swing at about 110 miles an hour. Their swing is that fast through the strike zone. Their bats are heavier than we would use, okay? So they've got a little mass there. And how big is that ball? Average Major League Baseball is 5.125 ounces. That's not very heavy, right? Now, if I go out there and I throw it as hard as I can at nine years old, and it's kind of slow and the guy hits it, he's going to crush it. Anybody ever heard of Araldus Chapman? Thank you, Will. 
he has recorded the fastest known pitch in Major League Baseball history. Anybody want to guess how fast it was? Now, a fast pitch, a really fast pitch is about 90, 92 miles an hour. That's fast. You don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. No, no, no. Araldis Chapman, they have a recorded pitch on the radar gun at 105.1 miles an hour. 105.1 miles per hour. Now, let me ask you this question. What if that same major league player who was swinging at my pitch and hit it, swings at that pitch and hits it. Now you got two really, really strong. The, the pitch is going 105 miles an hour. The bat's swinging at 110 miles an hour. Now take into, take into account what's going on here with the laws of motion. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. But then when you consider in the mass of the ball, which is 5 ounces, and then the mass of that bat, which is probably what? 35, 36 ounces? And he's traveling at 105 miles an hour and he's swinging at 110 miles an hour? How much further is that ball going to go than if I was pitching at 20 miles an hour? Because all of that force that's coming at 110 miles, 105 miles an hour is going to get met by a bigger mass swinging faster. And if you go home, if you get a chance this evening, and search for videos of super slow motion baseballs being hit. They actually flatten out. And if you've ever squeezed a baseball, it's pretty solid, right? Look that up. When, when the sweet spot of that bat hits that ball, that ball flattens. And so that 105 mile an hour ball it's coming this meets a really a stronger force, bigger mass, faster speed, flattens the ball and it gets a flat spot on it. It doesn't actually like pancake, but it gets a flat spot on it. Bam. So, which ball is going to travel further? The ball that I pitched at 22 miles an hour or the ball that Araldus Chapman threw at 105.1 miles an hour? Araldus Chapman's ball is going to fly further because there's more speed, more mass, more all this physics stuff that I don't understand coming, and that's going to be turned around and met with stronger mass, faster, huh? Assuming the same contact. We're, we're assuming the sweet spot. We're assuming the sweet spot of the bat hits the ball. And they're swinging at 110 miles. So, moral of the story is, the faster the ball is coming towards you, the further it's going to fly if you hit it. Does that make sense? Are you with me? 22 miles an hour, it'll fly. 105 miles an hour, it's really going to fly. It's going to react quicker, faster, further. Farther. Farther's distance. Now what in the world does that have to do with anything? We are on, in the book of Romans, third point of our outline, blessings, the results of being right with God. We've been through sin and back again. We saw in chapter 1 through chapter 3 verse 20 that everybody has a need to be right with God because everybody is born a sinner. Everybody. Paul was very thorough. The Holy Spirit was very thorough in those three chapters talking about that. Then we moved into how can we be right with God then? We need to be right, point one. So how can we be right? Point two was justification by faith. 
the means for being right with God. And the only way to be right with God, to be justified, is by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Islam doesn't have a way. Buddha doesn't have a way. Muhammad doesn't have a way. Krishna doesn't have a way. The only way to be right with God is through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's faith alone, not works. You're not going to work and get right with God. You're going to place your faith in the one who has worked. That was chapter 321 through 425. Then we moved into two weeks ago, the the pre-Christmas message, the front door of point three blessings. The results of being right with God. I want to say something about the message two weeks ago. How many of you were here for that message? How many of you were conscious? A few of you. Okay. I painted a pretty bleak picture of our pre-saved selves. And what I said in that message was, and we'll talk about it again in a little bit, is the fact that before you were born again, when you were in your sin, you were God's enemy. God was at war with you, and you were at war with God whether you knew it or not. We talk about the doctrine of depravity, and what depravity means is that you are as bad off as you could possibly be before you're born again. And then what we saw in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 is that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So we went from being God's enemy to being justified, which gave us peace with God. And what I want to con- continually reinforce from the message two weeks ago is, before you were born again, you were in awful shape. You weren't all right and God was looking at you saying, oh, they might get this figured out. You were at war with God and God was at war with you. And you have to see that before you can understand the miracle of grace. You have to see how bad the bad news is before you can see how good the good news is. You were lost. You were dead. You were at war with God. And that's a hard truth to swallow. But when you see that justification got rid of that enmity, and now you're at peace with God, you can rejoice all the more. It's kind of like those laws of motion, right? When the bad news is really, really bad, when it meets the good news, the good news really destroys the bad news. I want you to get a hold of that. The worse the bad news is, the better the good news is. You with me? Who's not awake? Raise your hand. Okay. Just handle. Okay. So, We are in our second message of blessings, the results of being right with God. Keeping in mind where we've been through this point when we talked about Asian Station. Will I bring this up every week until we're done with Romans? Probably not. But I want you to remember, expiation was God taking the guilt of our sin away, putting it on Christ where He poured out His wrath upon it, which is propitiation. He took the righteousness of Christ and gave it to us, which is imputation which resulted in justification, which was the beginning of our salvation. Super important. Asian Station, please understand that. And again, this happened, and we'll talk about this more next week, this happened while you were still in your sins, when you were at war with God. Get a hold of that. So, 
We're going to read. We're actually going to read chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 for the whole context. And then we'll look at verses 3 through 5 today. So if you would, please stand as we read the Bible. We stand out of reverence for the Word of God and the God of the Word. So give Him that reverence. Pay attention. Listen. Show respect to the Word of God and to the God of the Word as we read. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray. God, Your Word is perfect. It restores the soul. I pray that You would restore us this morning, God, to a right understanding, a right fellowship with You, a right comprehension of who You are and what You've done for us if we are Yours. God, if there are people this morning who are sitting in this building that do not know You, who have not been adopted into Your family, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would convict them and show them that they are at enmity with You. They are at war with You. And they need to be reconciled to You through the gift of grace seen, realized in Jesus Christ. Father, I simply ask that You would honor Your Word. And I know that You will, and that Your Holy Spirit will enliven us so that we can see it, hear it, and live it out. We trust You now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Okay, to get the context for where we're going today, I want to quickly, and I mean quickly, run through what we looked at two weeks ago. Therefore, and we looked at chapter 4, was all about justification, Abraham, and how it was by faith, not by works. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, by faith alone, We have peace with God. So it's like we get justified is us knocking on the door of God. And again, that's that's something that God did in us to bring us there. We knock on the door and what do we get? We get peace with God. And God says, you are welcome here. That's huge. Through Jesus Christ. Now through Him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith. So we had peace with God, but we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And grace is not just a warm feeling that God has for us. Grace is a force. Grace is a power. You could sum up grace in three words. You want a good simple definition for grace? Here it is. God at work. That's what grace is. Write that down if you're taking notes. Tuck it away if you're not. Grace is God at work. So through Jesus we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, into God being at work in us in which we stand. If you're going to stand in the Christian life, it's by grace alone. You're not going to muster up enough faith to to be right with God or to stay right with God. It's going to be by grace. So we knocked on the door. We got peace with God. God says, you're welcome. You're welcome to stay here with me forever. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we walk in the door and we've already got two gifts. We've got peace. We've got grace. And God says, all this is yours forever. So we rejoice, this is mine? With you, your stuff, you, for me, forever? And God says, yes. So we rejoice that even though now we see it darkly, one day we'll see it as it is, full on, face to face. And God says, you have a hope. This can never be taken from you. 
And what can never be taken from us is that our original purpose was to glorify God. So we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Peace with God. Grace in which we stand. And hope of the glory of God. Those are the three gifts that we got immediately, immediately upon entrance into the kingdom of God. That's fantastic. Now, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. We'll stop there for right now. So, come out of verses 1 and 2. We've received the gifts I talked about. Having been justified by faith, we have, first, peace with God. Second, we have access into the grace that we stand in. And thirdly, we have hope in the glory of God. Now, that's a pretty strong lineup to begin with, right? Especially considering that all of this was given to us as gifts of God's grace. And that in the midst of not just being indifferent to God, but actually being His enemy. Now, okay, get this in your head. Who's your worst enemy? Let's just say ISIS. ISIS is a pretty nasty enemy, right? Anybody want to have ISIS over for tea one day? Or just a, an ISIS member, maybe not the whole group of them. Hey guys, come on in for... Hey, seriously, think about this. What God has done for you is equivalent to setting your affection on a member of ISIS who would like nothing more than to kill you to receive his own reward or her own reward. You invite him over into your house and you say, I want you to have all this. This is for you because I love you. That's what God's done for you. You weren't indifferent to God. You were His enemy. So we moved from being God's enemy to God's child. And we got all the benefits of sonship because of our faith in the Son of God Himself. And like I said, I painted a pretty bleak picture two weeks ago of our state before being justified because we have to see how bad the bad news is before we can see how amazing the good news is. We were as bad off as we could have possibly been before God saved us. I don't care to say it again. Because it's true. And now we see in verse 3 that even when the bad news comes, we are awash in good news still. So the not only that is referring back to the glorious goodness of verses 1 and 2, where we see that we were justified, have peace with God, have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And now, Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, I really liked the role that he was on before he got to suffering. Faith, justification, peace, grace, hope. These are all good. These are warm, fuzzy words, right? These are good words. Yay, God like those words, and now he says, sufferings? Wait, what? You want to go from being justified, peace with God, grace, hope, glory, and then you want to talk about sufferings? But, but why? What is the flow of thought here? You can see how the wording makes this a contrast to what was said before. All the good stuff was mentioned, and then, to make sure that the point is driven home, Paul turns away from what we see as good, and he focuses on what we would normally see as bad. So we saw all the good stuff in verses 1 and 2, and then not only that, but... And that's kind of a, but wait, there's more. 
but the more is not like the original stuff. But how would that make sense? Now the easiest, and I've, I've, I've thought about this, trying to figure out a picture to kind of convey to you what this is like. Okay, The easiest picture I come up with was like a house. Now a house is a place where you live, right? Am I right? Okay, thank you. It's where you and your family make memories. You invite friends and loved ones over. You eat, you drink, you play. You do all the stuff you love to do in your house. Now, not only that, but that house also protects you from the brutal elements of wind, rain, snow, cold, heat, and all the stuff that would be harmful or hurtful. Right? So you got all this good stuff, this warm, fuzzy stuff, but not only that, it also protects you from the bad stuff. You see what I'm saying here? See where I'm going? See the logic or illogic if you don't see it as logical? Now plug that thought into our line of thinking here. Justification, being right with God, faith, grace, hope, glory are all wonderful, wonderful realities of our salvation. But not only that, even when we suffer as believers in Christ, we rejoice. The house still protects us from the bad stuff that is still bad stuff. We're not immune to it. The rain still falls. The temperatures still drop. But we are still rejoicing in the midst of it, kept in the shelter of the home of salvation that God has built for us in Christ. We enjoy all the good stuff, and even in the midst of bad stuff outside, we're still kept safe. Now I want you to hear this. The stuff outside does affect us in this analogy. It's not a perfect analogy. You still got to go to work, right? It's still snowing. You still got to dig out your driveway. You still might slip and slide on the road. There might be a flood outside. So it's still there. You're not immune to it, but you are kept safe from it in the house of salvation. Same thing with suffering. When we're invited into the house, we knock on the door, God says, you're welcome, come in, this is all yours. When we come in, Outside, the storm's still raging. The battle's still being fought. And you're not immune to it, but you are kept safe in the midst of it as He invites you in. This is not in any way, shape, or form saying that sufferings won't come when you're adopted. We'll talk about that more later. They will come, but in the midst of them we rejoice. But why? Because we know as believers that sufferings produce what? Endurance. Hmm. Now that endurance thing might be a good thing to have around, don't you think? Anybody scared of not making it all the way to heaven? Anybody scared that you might fall away one day? That, shoot, they might find some archaeological piece of evidence that says, Jesus Christ buried here, here's His bones. Does that scare you at all? Have you ever wrestled with that? What if they find Jesus' body? They're not going to. But there's that doubt in my head from time to time thinking, but what if? What if? Or what if I just mess up so much that God's mad at me? What if I commit that sin that I can't be forgiven for? I think the Bible says something about that, doesn't it? Isn't there a sin that you can't be forgiven for? What if I commit that? I can't be forgiven. Anybody ever struggle with these things? Anybody scared that God might get mad at them and never forgive them again? Man, I've struggled with that. So this thing called endurance might be something good to have around. 
Because the sufferings are going to come. We've established that. How are we going to make it through those sufferings? We need endurance. If we're going to start down this road, we might just want to make it to the end. And suffering helps ensure that we will. Suffering helps ensure that we will have endurance. Suffering produces endurance. What's a dog food factory make? Dog food. What does suffering produce? It produces endurance. I want endurance. Do you want endurance? I hope you want endurance. But that's not all. Wait, there's more. It slices, it dices. Just look at that tomato. Verse 4, And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So we've got a progression of suffering to endurance, and now endurance produces what? Character. Now what's character? The word means a proof, a specimen of tried worth. It's the result of going through something and showing that you held up and made it through. Character is saying, I can do a hundred push-ups. Now I can say that all day long, but when I flop down on the floor and get going and I get to number seven and I realize, uh-oh, <laughs> I put on some weight over the holidays. And you get up having done seven push-ups, do you have character? No. You haven't proven that you can do what you said you could do. Now, what if I say I could do 100 push-ups and I plop down and y'all count and you're like, 98, 99, 100, and I stand up and do this number. Character. Now, I might want to work on the moral aspect of that. But the physical aspect says, I said I could do it. I did it. Now I stand up and show you, hey, I did that. That's what character is referring to. It's something that's proven, something of tried worth. Saying it, doing it, coming out on the other side of it, having been proven. What about a bulletproof vest? It says it can stop a bullet at 10 feet. What if you're standing 10 foot from somebody that's got a gun pulled, cocked, ready to shoot? You hope that thing has character, right? Because if it doesn't, it doesn't do what it said it would do. Character. In our progression... Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Now, what does that mean? It means when we suffer, it's like working out, which obviously you can tell that I do. Thanks for not laughing. That was beautiful. You were laughing on the inside. When we suffer, it's like working out. It's hard, but we can do more and more as we continue to do it. When I first started running on the treadmill, I could run for about two minutes before I had to stop and puke, and then walk a little bit, and then run a little bit more, then stop and puke some more, then walk some more. Yesterday, I got on the treadmill and I ran for 30 minutes, nonstop. Didn't puke once. I wanted to puke, but I didn't puke. So as we work out more and more, we can do more and more. That's endurance. And then as we do more and more in our endurance, we prove ourselves to ourselves and to those around us. I would invite you to come home with me and watch me run on the treadmill. You will see that I am not lying. I ran for 30 minutes, did not puke, did not stop. I get done, I'm a sweaty mess, and you're like, high five, man, you did it. Okay? That's coming from running two minutes and puking. 
to go into 30 minutes. Endurance and then character. We've proven it to ourselves. We've proven it to those around us. We have character. And what does character produce? Answers are on the board. Okay. Hope is correct. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Now we've talked about hope a little bit already. For those of you that weren't with us or that were with us two weeks ago, biblical hope is not a faint wish or a dim prospect that you hope comes true. I used the illustration that day of, I hope the Redskins win today. Now what could I do to affect that? Not even sitting in my lucky position. You remember me sitting up here and saying when I was younger, I thought if I sat a certain way and they were winning, I wouldn't move because if I moved it would affect them. I did that, by the way. I was hoping that something would happen outside the realm of my help that I could do nothing about and I had zero way of knowing if it would happen or not. That's not biblical hope. By, by the way, the Redskins did win that day and the next week. And now we're NFC East champions and we play the Cowboys today in a meaningless game that we're going to win anyway. Sorry. <clears throat> um, but ultimately, that kind of hope is not sure at all. Biblical hope, however, is sure. It's fixed and unshakable. The book of Hebrews says that hope is an anchor for our souls. And that's the kind of hope being referenced here in Romans 5.4. And just a quick note, hope is not a destination to get to in this progression. It's not like you've got to go through suffering and then get endurance and then get character and then get hope. I want to refer back to Romans 5.2. Romans 5.2 said, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in what? Hope of the glory of God. So what do you see there? Hope. And that hope precedes the hope mentioned here. So we go from hope to hope. The Bible talks about faith to faith. The Bible talks about glory to glory, from one degree to another. So we're not having to go through sufferings to get hope. We start with hope. And as we go through sufferings, we get endurance and we get character, and then we see a new level of hope that we didn't experience before. So it's not like, oh, God, help me get through this suffering so that I can get some hope. No, you started with hope. And when you come through on the other side, you've got even more hope than you had before. A realization of that hope. That's what we're talking about. Hope to hope, faith to faith, strength to strength. It's one degree to another. That's how this hope works. So suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope, which, as it turns out in our next verse, is really a good thing. Let's look at verse 5. Why is hope a good thing? Because hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we said that Hebrews said that hope is an anchor for our souls. And here in Romans, we see that hope does not put us to shame. You ever put your hope in something that lets you down? The Redskins, maybe? Yes? So what does that mean, that hope does not put us to shame? It means that when we have hope, biblical hope, we have no fear of being embarrassed. Embarrassed of what? Have you ever been afraid that somebody would find out that you were faking about something? Or that you were a fake? You ever been standing in a circle of people who were saying or talking about maybe sports? 
and you join in the conversation not knowing a thing about what they're talking about. Or maybe they're talking about coal mining. Or maybe they're talking about guns. Or maybe they're talking about bicycles. Or And you don't have a clue what they're talking about, but you really want to be in on the conversation. So you're sitting there, you're like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I saw that too. And you're like, I didn't see that. And they're like, man, and that one play happened. You're like, yeah, that was awesome. And then like, and then that one play happened. You're like, yeah, that was awesome. They're like, that wasn't awesome. That's what beat us. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what, yeah, awful. I mean, it was awful. And then they're like, you didn't watch the game, did you? You're like, you don't know anything about sports, do you? No, not really. And you're all embarrassed because they're like, oh boy. You're like, yeah, that, that guy got a home run in the fourth quarter to end the game and win, win for the Bruins. And they're like, what? A home runs in baseball, goofball. Touchdowns are in football, goofball. The Bruins are in hockey, goofball. You're like, oh. And everybody looks at you like you've got the pox. Because you're goofy and you're a fake. Anybody ever been in a situation something like that? I have. Don't do it. Don't be a fake. Don't be a phony. We're scared of being found to be a phony. What about with God? Are you scared that He might find you out to be a phony? You show up judgment day and He's like, why should I let you into heaven? Which is not going to happen, by the way. God's not going to say, why should I let you into heaven? What if He did? You're like, well, went to church. Gave money to the church. Those commercials about the orphans, I sent some money once. I was real nice to my neighbor. Um, did most of what my mama told me. He's going to look at you and say, you're a phony. You're a fake. Are you afraid of being found to be a phony in God's presence? This hope does not put us to shame. Get a hold of that. Here, hope does not put us to shame or embarrass us. Hope ensures that what we've placed our faith in, or better yet, who we've placed our faith in, is true and reliable, even in suffering. In this case, I'd say especially in suffering. We've lashed our very lives to the power and faithfulness of Jesus. And as we suffer, we endure and we build character and our hope is reinforced and we are not put to shame. Never! Not ever! And why? Because we tried real hard? No. Because we're super tough and did better than the people around us when we suffered? No. We're not put to shame because God... Look at the end of the verse. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now get a hold of this because it's key not only to this passage but also to the Christian life itself. Why does all of this work out? Why is it true? Because God. Because of what God has done. We suffer and it produces endurance. And endurance builds character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Now what do you suppose the connection is here? 
suffering, endurance, character, and hope because of God's love. Now let me say that again. Suffering, endurance, character, and hope because of God's love. Now I'm just going to leave that there until we get to the application points. We'll get back to that. What has God done with His love? He has poured it into the world. What's it say? He has poured love into our hearts. Hmm. A couple things I want to note here. First of all, whose love is it? God's love. This is not referencing our love for God, but God's love for us. I want you to think about that for just a second. God, the omnipotent, holy, all-knowing Creator and King, has poured His love for you into your heart. The word for has been poured translates as pour out 12 times, shed four times, shed forth once, spill once, run out once, shed five times, run greedily once, shed abroad one time, gush out one time, and spill another time. And it literally means to pour out or to shed forth, to bestow or distribute largely. So God has caused His love to be gushed out, to be distributed largely into our hearts, those who have placed their faith in Christ. He didn't accidentally spill His love. Oops, a little bit of my love spilled out on that guy. Sorry about that. Send me the dry cleaning bill. He bestows and distributes largely His own love. God has caused His love to be distributed largely into our hearts. So it's a lot of love. And that lot of love is God's love which makes it that much better. Now do you catch the immensity of that? God has lavished His love, poured it out in large measure into our hearts. That's good news. And how did He do it? This is probably the greatest truth of all in all of this. Through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Let's see if we can grasp this wonderful truth. Who is the Holy Spirit? Not what. I didn't say what is the Holy Spirit. I didn't say the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. The Holy Spirit who has been given. Who is the Holy Spirit? <laughs> he is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Now hold on a second. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So who has been given to us? God. 
What's for lunch? Who's playing football this afternoon? Who gives a rip compared to this? God has given Himself to us. God has poured His love out into our hearts by becoming a part of us. By taking His residence up in us. God! We talked in the message two weeks ago that God's design from Eden has been to dwell with men. And in Revelation we saw in that same message that that was fulfilled literally after sin had come into the world and things had been made right. The dwelling place of God is now with men is what it said in Revelation. After the fall in Eden where God had walked with men, sin came, separation, God can't dwell with men anymore. Revelation, the dwelling place of God is now with men. So one day, the new Jerusalem will come down. God will walk among men. He will be with them. All things will be made right. But now get a hold of this church. You don't have to wait until the end of all things to dwell with God. To walk with God. He is with us now in the person of the Holy Spirit. His design is to show us His love by being with us and by the power, the presence, and the person of the Holy Spirit. Listen, God is with us. We're a week past Christmas. He's still Emmanuel. If you are a Christian... If you're not, you're at war with God. God is at war with you. But if you're a believer, if you've placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the dwelling place of God is with you through the Holy Spirit. God has poured His love lavishly into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So God poured out His love into our hearts by coming to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. No wonder we aren't put to shame or embarrassed when we suffer. God Himself loves and empowers us with His very presence. Suffering, hurt, tribulation, pain. I'm not going to be put to shame because God is with me. What did we sing this morning? I will fear no evil for my God is with me. And if my God is with me, whom then shall I fear? And just to reference back to the previous section, we don't have to worry about being embarrassed of God either. Somewhere in our hearts we worry that we might be disappointed in God. What if He doesn't do what we wanted Him to do? What if He doesn't do it the way we wanted to? What if He disappoints us? Anybody ever have that thought or question? What if I go through all of this and then God's not even real? What if I'm just telling myself a story? What if He's a fake? What if the Da Vinci Code was right? It's not. 
Paul wrestled with that question too, or at least it seems like he did. When he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, listen to this, we're almost done. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What if we get to the end of this life and we're wrong? According to Paul, if we're wrong, we are a pitiful and pitiable group of people. And we are. If we get to the end of this life and we're wrong, we're fools. And people should look at us and say, Oh, poor Christians. They were wrong. And they're stupid. People are saying that today anyway. But guess what? We ain't wrong. God's not wrong. God is with us. God is for us in this life, preparing us for the life to come. Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15 and this passage points us to a God who is with us and who will not disappoint us on the authority of the Word of God. He will not disappoint us. And that, too, is good news. So that's the end of the passage. It's a lot of stuff. Three short verses. Let's tie it all up and see how we can apply it to our lives today. In my estimation, there are some very pertinent and powerful application points that come out of this. The first application point is this. Hear me, Christians. Hear me, believers. Suffering is certain. You will suffer. One shape, form, or another. Maybe it's a little petty thing that comes and goes. Maybe it's a big major thing that never leaves you. Paul said to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Plain and simple. Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble. So you come into this Christian life, wherever you're at on the continuum, whether you're just newly reborn or whether you've been born again for 30 years, suffering has come, suffering is coming, and suffering will come. I hate this easy believism that's being preached today that when you believe in Jesus, all your problems go away. Lord, no. No. If anything, the battle intensifies once you believe. Sufferings will come. Sufferings are certain. Know that. That's an application point. Sufferings are certain. Suffering is certain. That's the first point. Second point. Suffering is a gift. You're like, I don't want it. Put it back under the tree. Put somebody else's name on the tag. I don't want it. Listen to what I'm saying, church. Suffering is a gift from God Himself. What does James say? James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials. Who wants endurance? I want endurance. Who wants character? I want character. Who wants hope? I want hope. Well, congratulations. If you want those things, here's some suffering for you to develop those things. Suffering is certain. 
Suffering is a gift. Third point. Suffering is certain. Suffering is a gift. Third point of application is, listen, God is a gift. This is monstrous. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let me tell you something brilliant that I see that the Holy Spirit has done through the Apostle Paul. All of this culminates at the end of chapter 8. We're building up to a crescendo and what he says at the end is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And what he says here is, God is for us. God has been given to us. You, Christian, have the Holy Spirit of God. God Himself living in you as a gift. Suffering is certain. Suffering is a gift. But God is a gift too to the Christian. Suffering comes as a 105 mile an hour fastball. The bat that we swing is the Holy Spirit of God empowered by the very grace of God Himself. Let me tell you what, that suffering is going to fly farther. You're going to meet it with much more force the faster and the harder it comes at you. And it is going to fly away. I can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds on and there will be an end to this trouble. But until that day comes, still I will praise you. And I will swing away. I'm going to strike out sometimes. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fall. I'm going to miss the ball in right field like I did when I was nine. But there's coming a day when that suffering is going to fly away. And you will never see it again. But right now we swing and we swing and we swing and we keep our eye on the ball which is suffering. Throw it as hard as you want to throw it. Because the power that is in me is greater than the power of that ball coming toward me. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. John said in First John. Greater is He that is in you than any suffering that comes your way. Dad, gummit, that's good news. Listen, we are all suffering in one degree or another this morning. Some of you are suffering worse than others of us. I can't speak to your degree of suffering directly, but I can look at this and say the Holy Spirit is greater than your suffering. Suffering is certain. Suffering is a gift, but God is a gift too that is greater than your suffering. Guaranteed. Will not put us to shame. And that's the fourth application point. Suffering is certain. Suffering is a gift. God is a gift. And listen to me, church. God is certain. Suffering is certain. Suffering is a gift. God is a gift and God is certain. Scripture says that God is a God who cannot fail. It says that His way is perfect. 
In Him there is no spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. And it also says that one day we, you and I, church, Christians, will be presented before Christ as a bride without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. That is set in heaven and it will not change because God has said it. And what God has said... God will do. What God has said, God is doing. And He's doing it in you. He's doing it through you. And He cannot fail. Ultimately, Christian, you cannot fail in the midst of suffering. When it hurts the worst, this is the hope that you have. My God cannot fail, and He will present me before Himself in glory, for His glory. I have a hope of glory, glory in the glory of God, because He can't fail, and He's in me, and He's going to bring me to the place where I can't fail anymore. And it's not while we're here on earth. Yes, strike out, strike out, strike out, home run, strike out, strike out, strike out, strike out, strike out, ground out, pop out the left field, home run, that's our lives right now. But one day the ball's going to leave the park and it's never coming back because suffering has come at us as hard and as fast as it could and we swung the bat in the power of the Holy Spirit and it's gone further than it's ever flown before, never to return. Suffering is certain. Suffering is a gift. God is a gift and God is certain. I want to finish just by reading the passage again in light of all that. Listen, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The good news far outweighs the suffering and the bad news. Put your faith in the finished work of Christ who has already realized it. And live in such a way that sufferings cause you to rejoice because it's producing in you a weight of glory that far outweighs anything that you go through today. If you have gone through something in your past, if you're going through something right now, if you go through something in the future that has tortured you, hurt you, produced in you grief, listen, the glory that awaits you in heaven far outweighs what you're going through, what you have been through. You can trust in that because God has given Himself to you and He cannot fail. Suffering is certain. Suffering is a gift. God is a gift. God is certain. Let's pray. God, I pray that by the power of Your Holy Spirit You would drive this truth home to us who have put our faith in the finished work of Christ. We cannot fail. We will stumble. We will fall. We will come up short in this life, but one day we will be presented before You blameless and without guilt because You have said that it would happen. And if You have said it, you will perform it. Your way, Your Word is perfect. So God, as we suffer, may we not suffer silently. May we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that ultimately it brings You glory. Knowing that suffering 
produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because you have poured your love out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom you have given us. You are faithful. Faithful is the one who called you, and He will bring it to pass. God, if there's somebody here this morning that doesn't know that truth, convict them of their sins. Show them that they need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. And if they will place their faith in Him and His finished work, they will be born again to a living hope. And they will have peace with You. They will have access into this grace in which we stand. And they will rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Thank You for Your faithfulness and goodness, God. Thank You for Your Word. Make it alive in us in Jesus' name. Amen. I would just stand for a benediction and we'll be done. This is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Just pronounce this over us this morning. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay with us and eat if you can.